everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and, and this guy, Vlad. As I said, episode 69, very special part two of our modern enterprise architecture with Jeff Nepper and Graham Welton. Uh, Jeff, Graham, welcome to the show. Vlad, welcome back. Thank you so much for the intro, Dave. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us for a second episode. Uh, just want to quickly apologize again for missing the last Wednesday, but very happy to be back. I think the conversation was really interesting. There's been a lot of really good points made with uh, which I agree uh, quite heavily based on my experience. I want to point out a couple of things, I guess, that have been said. So maybe the challenges of, uh, I would say, general modern enterprise architecture. And I would say maybe even starting a little bit before that, but why are we trying to solve these problems? And I think like Jeff pointed this out is ultimately we want the data, we want the analytics that allows us to have a better overview of our business so that we can then go ahead and pinpoint problems that we can solve, right? And so what makes it complicated is that to start off is number one, there's missing contextualization right now for data. So there's a lot of data being created by numerous devices at plants, facilities, uh, whatever you may have. And they're being to some extent pulled into maybe a historian, a data lake, and there's not enough context or not enough, I would say almost, um, how, how would you say it? I guess there's not enough information to be able to make sense of that data on the data scientist, I would say like layer, right? So being able to analyze all of that data and make sense of it, being able to present it to the C-suite to then make decisions is fairly complicated. And there's going to be a lot of challenges along the way. So it could be based on the devices that are creating that data. It could be the edge gateways that, that there are funneling the data. It could then be the historian or the data lake that's congregating that data and ultimately who's analyzing that data and how we're transforming it. And so I want to maybe start us off with one point that uh, Jeff mentioned, and I guess like a quote, which is what we can do with data is advancing an incredible pace, but we're not doing the basics to enable what's coming next. And I think that's very true, again, based on my experience, what I've seen is that there is a tremendous, I think, push for a lot of the technologies that solve maybe the last mile problem, metaphorically speaking. But right. there's a lot that we need to do in order to facilitate the solution of that challenge, right? And so I wanted to maybe, again, get your perspective, perhaps once again, perhaps, you know, maybe a little bit deeper into what do you think those challenges are at the fundamental level so that we can enable this data being collected in a, I would say, cohesive manner so that we can use it, you know, maybe one, three, five years down the road. Yeah. Well, um, thanks, Vlad. Uh, thanks for quoting me, I think, better than I sounded when I said it. Uh, appreciate that. I was expecting it to go the other way. I was expecting to be like, I didn't say that, Vlad. But that, uh, that sounded really good. Um, so I think first it's education. Um, I can tell you from uh, the role that I'm working towards on the Integrate Live side, which is more community aspect, you know, this, this concept of understanding the value of a data point and its entire life cycle, um, what, how many different people and systems and processes does that data point when you create it on one of those PLCs behind you, where does that single data point actually travel in its life? And before from creation to the point of 
to the point of um, uh, where it's obsolete. How many different things is it going to touch? And when I do that, why does it matter if I make sure I spend time and get the quality uh, correct? Just that one little simple thing about not maintaining uh, good practices uh, at the edge on understanding quality of data uh, and what that can do to somebody using uh, a tool later on on the data scientist side uh, or uh, anywhere in between. And so I think education is where it has to start, is that anybody inside the organization understanding that everything they touch and everything they do in the course of their day, how many other things it ends up being connected to and why that matters. That's really interesting. I guess I I would agree that education is an important point. I think um, Dave would also agree with the fact that I think there's confusion in our industry where there is, I think there's a lot of opportunities that lie in doing things. Well, I guess there's a lot of opportunity in the data and it's not always obvious. And I think it's also the mindset of it not being obvious today should not stop us from getting that data in order for what's to come, right? And I think like that's a very, I think like important distinction to make because ultimately I think that the more information we gather and the more information we can process and analyze, it's going to make it easier for us to find those problems, right? Uh, and I guess, like, I'm wondering what your your thoughts are on that. Uh, maybe for, like, the manufacturing industry, if you take um, a plant that's producing probably a million data points at a time, like, are you looking to build a scalable, again, and that's a word that you've you guys have used extensively in the last conversation. Where does the scalability fit in? How do you see it being discussed in our industry? Where do you think are maybe some like pain points on that front as well? Yeah. Um, how about I'll start off and Graham, there's, I'm sure you've got something you'd like to add on the back. Um, so when we talk about scalability and we're, and we're talking about that many points, uh, a recent customer we were speaking with, uh, is trying to avoid having to recreate new points in three or four different systems. So that's the first way that I would think towards scalability, right? So we bring a new facility online and I'm speaking specifically right now to an industry where they're constantly growing. Okay. So a fixed operation inside of four walls, this may not be as applicable or as much of a pain point, but imagine um, in oil and gas where we get these really large tag counts. Uh, where they're constantly bringing on new facilities, new wells, new pads. Um, they're creating these tags at the edge. They're programming them at the PLC. They're mapping them in an OPC server. They're adding some type of context in, at, the, at the most basic, hopefully at least engineering units um, and descriptions, but also high, high, low, low set points. Um, then they're going over to their historian they're doing this again. Then they're going into their SCADA system. They're, they're doing this again. Then they're going into their MES system. They're going, wherever all these other systems, they have to go do this again. So the, the question becomes for scalability, number one is why would I spend two months man hours to bring on a facility if I could do it in a day and a half? Uh, you probably wouldn't want to. So fundamentally, what needs to change to be able to do that? Well, we probably need to look at some different technology that would allow me to create all of that contextualization at the edge one time 
and then inherently make all of my other systems aware of it. So just real simple, simple answer to that. Well, if I use something like MQTT spark plug, all of a sudden I give it all that contextualization on the edge. It hits the broker. Everything subscribes to the broker based on topic. Everything inherently gets the structure, gets the context and is aware of that point instantaneously. And so my first answer on scalability is just that, is what is the amount of work that is necessary in order to be able to bring that data into your systems? So part two answer I would have for that is, let's just say that you've nailed the architecture, right? And you figured out how to do it and you're doing it with MQTT. From the historian side, what does scalability mean? Well, it means how do I get as much work done with as little licensing cost uh, as possible. So as I'm approaching this solution, what are the bare minimums that my, my technology has to be able to accomplish? I have to be able to subscribe to a, a PubSub architecture like MQTT, um, like OPC UA PubSub. I have to be able to scale and grow in my resources, which means my performance, my rights per second has to be able to keep up. Um, scalability means I have to be able to do more with that data later on. So I need a true lossless compression algorithm. And I need to be able to suck data out of this archive at speed, which means I need a really fast read performance. So can I, questions to ask, can I update at a half a million updates per second or more? Can I handle a million plus tags on a single server? Can I pull out uh, at a million updates per second or more for accessibility on the backside of my of what I need in my process. So these are the types of questions that I think we have to ask about the technology side of it, um, whether it's how we implement or what we're choosing to plug in um, for scale. Yeah, and I think, again, I've seen these questions be brought up in many customer conversations. I think um, again, to go back to the point of educating your customer, the industry that we're in, I think there's a massive difference between, again, like an oil well site versus a large manufacturing facility, right? So the solutions from a software and hardware standpoint may look similar, but in order to scale, they're going to be quite different to accommodate that, uh, that data flow. And I think that point is maybe sometimes missed in at least the conversations that I've been having and quite a bit more, um, I would say, it, it needs to be quite a bit more involved to solve a problem at the higher level of that uh, data flow. And it becomes very difficult to manage in many ways. But no, I, I really like the, where the conversation went last week. I have, you know, many more questions for Graham and Jeff. I wanted to, maybe to let Dave dive in as well. Uh, Dave, do you have any questions so that we can I know that we left the conversation on a cliffhanger, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to follow up on that as well. No, no, th thank you. I, I appreciate that, Vlad. I, I think you had a bunch of, I think you had a, a number of good questions, and I think many of the questions are going to be resolved. So I think mm -hmm. we're going to go let uh, Graham talk a little bit about kind of the, the continuation and what, what does he, what does everyone in this conversation kind of see as the modern enterprise architecture, and, and how are we going to build that? So, so maybe just Dave Led, just quickly, uh, I want to add to what Jeff was saying earlier, um, and then we can then we can jump into a little bit more detail. 
Um, Jeff was addressing, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but you were addressing mostly kind of the historian layer, right? And, right. and you want a system at that level to automatically capture the metadata associated with, with the control system level. So like your units of measure, et cetera, et cetera, descriptions, whatever. You want that all, your limits, you want that all to come in and be attached to your tag definition. If we, if we take that to the next level now, um, and I'm talking your, your analytics hub level where you are converting the data, you're transforming it into information, you must remember that you potentially are creating a whole lot more information. It's not restricted to the tags in your historian. It could be combining multiple tags together it could be grabbing context from an MES database. It could be grabbing context from a LIMS database. And it's creating additional information within that analytics hub. And so to, to come to the point of scalability, which, which Jeff was answering, um, there, there are a couple of things at that level, that next level analytics hub level that, that are really important. Um, and that is that you never want to replicate that underlying raw data. And Jeff said it as well. You don't want to replicate it. You've already got it. You've already invested in a system that is storing that raw data for you. And you've probably got years worth of data in it. So ideally, you want your analytics hub to be, go, to be able to go back in time and, and use that historical data to start providing you even more information um, that you can that you can analyze. So that's the first thing around scalability. Never replicate. The second thing I, I think the point I'd like to make is around having a type system. And when I say a type system, I'm talking about having a template type, a template mechanism where you can define your components of your information model as templates. And then you can rapidly instantiate those templates. That gives you huge scalability. Um, if you can automatically create and instantiate from a template, even better, because uh, then you can make use of that metadata coming all the way from the, from the control system to instantiate automatically in your analytics hub. That, that is the dream. Graham, Just to clarify, uh, Graham. Sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask him to clarify information model and how that's different than an asset model, because I think that's a term that a lot of people aren't as familiar with as they might be to an asset model. I had, yeah, I had a similar question just to finish on that thought. Just maybe, can you give us some examples of uh, set templates? Because in my mind, that's, you know, being on the control level side, maybe that's templates for like, you know, a drive system or maybe like an entire PLC has like a, a data model. Like what do you mean by uh, templates? at the data analytics platform. Yeah, sure. So, so think of it, the mechanism is very similar to what you're talking about. You, you're defining a type, a, U, uh, a UDT mm -hmm. okay. in your PLC, for example. Um, typically that's going to be related to your equipment or your control modules. Um, at the information model, it's gonna be a little bit higher. It's gonna be a model for a filler OEE and the constituents that make up that OEE, for example. 
you might then extrapolate that and and provide different time period contexts to that. So do we want to see our OEE for the last minute? Do we want to aggregate it for the last hour of the shift, the shift today? Do we want to look at it for the last month? So those additional time period contexts need to come into that template as well. Um, and, and, and we might talk a little bit about this because this talks to the contextualization of, of information. But that's what I mean by creating a template. Um, it's, it's the higher level information, the KPIs related to your equipment uh, or groups of equipment, maybe an entire production line, for example. Uh, it could even be totally unrelated to your assets. It could be related to uh, safety KPIs, risk KPIs on your, at your facility. Um, so you can extend that information beyond the assets, beyond S88, beyond S95. Um, and, and I think that to answer Jeff's question, what is the information model? It is, is literally, it's it, in our mind, it's encapsulating your asset model, but it extends it because it, you can add additional KPIs to that model, um, which, which people need to make decisions based on. So I hope that addresses the question around the information model clearly, Jeff. Yeah, it does. So I, I'm thinking... Um... You know, uh, in a historian, you pick up an asset model or an asset template, and that's simply just the grouping of tags into equipment type, right? And around that, we typically then build some calculations, and and we might start visualizing using some type of template templatized dashboard that maybe it filters based on condition type of an asset. Yeah, so uh, you said filler. Show me all my fillers that are operating above spec or below spec. Uh, but what you're saying, what I heard was taking that and and making it far more analytics driven, because now all of a sudden I'm taking what what in my space I know is an asset model, but I'm actually adding adding like you I think you mentioned OEE components to that equipment type and then time periods to that equipment type. So it's a much more analytics driven asset model essentially is that fair it is and oee is only one example of that um what are a few you know some 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 um companies out there don't really care for oee they might just want a simple efficiency calculation for example are we are we um, uh, looking at rick Bellotta? that's for you i don't think rick's a big fan <laughs> of measurements right so absolutely um the other examples are, let's, let's use another example. Let's take the production plan and we pull that out of your ERP system. You know, that's, that's not associated with a specific equipment, a, a filler or a control module. It's, it's associated with a piece of your plant, a line, and that's your work order for the day or for the week, for example. Um, and then we want to, and then we want to have an, uh, an actual. What have we produced so that we can compare against that plan? 
And then we want to calculate the reliability. How reliable is our plant and our people in achieving against that plan? Mm -hmm. So there you've created a new piece of information. You know, you've taken a plan from your ERP. You've taken your actual from your, your, your bottle counter. You've done a calculation now and, and you've created something new, which is an incredibly valuable piece of information. How reliable am I against my plan? And I can now contextualize that against which shift team is running or which uh, hour of the day or, I don't know, against the ambient temperature, whatever. You know, you can start mixing in context and, and really start adding value to the guys that need to make decisions. And I would add maybe, Graham, even on that point, right, even something as, I would say, fundamental as how well are we running at the plant versus what we've planned to produce is not a, I would say, question that a lot of plants that I've been to, at least, are able to easily answer, right? And that's yeah. just knowing that one, I would say, like data point, which again, as you said, you can contextualize with many other additional variables, is going to allow someone in like a CI director, CI manager, engineer level role to be able to address and figure out why we're not, you know, meeting the plan or which shift is doing better and, and for what reasons, right? Like you can start the, I would say, the fundamental questions to resolve a, I would say, a very needed business problem. Absolutely. And, and what you've just described there is diagnostic analytics. So that so we've got the descriptive analytics, which tells us the what, what has happened. And that's typically what a, what a historian is going to give you. Right. Um, but what, what you've just stated there, Vlad, the why did it happen? That's that next level of analytics called diagnostic analytics. And it's an absolute fundamental to be able to make decisions and to be able to drive improvement continuously. Um, you also want to make use of your historical data and, and, and you want to analyze the history so that you can get a baseline. Because if you're going to start making incremental changes to your system in, in the interest of making improvements, you have to be able to compare against your baseline to prove what you've done has actually improved or not. Um, and, and I'd go even further to say that you actually need to have a very good understanding of your process. And often system engineers and data engineers are not the right people that understand the process. So you actually need to work with your process engineers who have a fundamental understanding of what can be changed to affect a step change in your process. But at least now you've got the data to back up your baseline and, and prove that your changes have made that step change or not. Let me ask you this. Do you think that as we get more data, there will be a, I guess, a future, maybe a distant future where someone with fairly little knowledge of the process can, I want to say like tweak knobs or tweak different levers, right, of the process and be able to realize and again, this is probably going to be done by AI and machine learning in the future, but ultimately 
I guess the question is, do you think it's more data is going to facilitate um, the need of more process knowledge? Yes, I, I do. I think I think we we, we there's, there's one interesting thing here. We must remember that when we're putting machine learning or AI onto a process, if we are trying to learn on a process where the data, firstly, the data needs to be cleaned, the data needs to be, to a point, needs to be fairly aggregated. Um, but if that process has been running badly for the last 15 years, and we now train our model on a bad performing process, it's, 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 we just, we're just going to produce, we're going to predict poor results, right? We're not going to get, we're not going to get the outcomes that we need. And that's why I think we must remember always that we do need to have, especially now, I think we're in the infancy of machine learning and AI in our space. So we have to rely on the process engineers to be able to provide human input into those models. And this is where an analytics hub becomes very important because if we can capture, uh, whether it's commentary, whether it's classification of data within the model, then we can use that information later on in the machine learning process, the training processes. Okay. And that's going to then drive us to, to potentially to go and need to create more information to, to answer your question. I, I, I agree with what you said, Graham. I think I would just be interested to get your take on that scalability though, meaning that yes, we, we need human interaction with the analytics hub, taking what's coming out and qualifying it as, as the models are being trained and learning from it, right? We, need, we definitely need that human interaction, at least at this stage in the game, to say, yes, this is valid, no, it's not. But what, what I think, Vlad, I would say it reduces the level of your knowledge of your process exponentially because one or two experts, you know, those plant whispers. Those men or women that 30 years, they can walk into a room and they hear the way something's running. They smell the ozone and, and they know, wait a minute, get over here. And everybody else is, what are you talking about? You're, you're replicating them into all of the different parts of your operation. You're, you're exponentially growing their knowledge base and directing those without that specific experience to go fix problems. Um, do any of you know Peter Harding at Calvin AI by chance? Okay, he'd be a good guy to know. You should connect with him. He's the most impressive person I've met in the last 30 days, other than you, Vlad. Um, uh, Peter, Peter had like a venture capital background and, and with an entrepreneurial father, and he got bored in the investment banking world, but he got exposed to industrial automation, and he learned about the, these new algorithms, and he got a data scientist team together, and they said, Let's see if we can train a model to detect what type of dancing you're doing. And so if, Dave, you're talking about TikTok dances, if, if you were twerking in a TikTok dance, their algorithm would be able to say, that's a dance and that's a twerk versus that's Vlad waltzing over there in his video. Well, they brought that technology into, into the oil and gas field. And all of a sudden they were able to find 
and identify uh, carbon emission leaks inside of midstream and upstream operations based on this exact same algorithm they were using before, tweaked slightly from detecting whether you're doing the Charleston or doing, uh, doing the twist, they've brought over into that space uh, with Kelvin. And so what, what, and the reason I know all this is I was helping them with, you know, we were having a conversation about messaging. How do you explain this? And it's, it's simple. It's how do you take a normal control system that might be considered legacy and bolt on, bolt on an analytics package. So get an analytics hub, get data out of it to this mystery question mark, which I keep hearing Graham say analytics hub. I'm thinking he's named it. And then get it out of there into these machine learning algorithms like Kelvin and get that feedback loop and get collaborative control going. So essentially take that factory whisperer and expand their ability to people that don't have knowledge of the process the way that they do. Um, and so I think, yes, we still need that deep knowledge of the process, but we don't need it everywhere and we don't need it within every one like we currently do now. It's, a, it's an interesting answer. And I really like that example. I, I guess like from what I gather, you need twerking. a lot of it. Huh? The twerking? Is that uh... the, twerking. the twerking did it for him, Jeff. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, but no, it's, it's the example of, I guess, um, taking the data and like truly building something that understands a process that has not been defined, right? And from what I understand, it's important to have someone who understands the process at the learning stage for the algorithm. And maybe once that is done, it becomes, or I guess the learning curve becomes much less steeper for the next person that's now looking and trying to optimize this process. But I think it still is at this point, and feel free to jump in on this thought, it's a fairly complicated problem at this stage in manufacturing, right? Because there's, again, for all the reasons that we've discussed thus far, but ultimately there needs to be a very good model that provides us data that then can be analyzed. And then ultimately a lot like adjustments need to be made appropriately, which I think at this point are made by humans, but that need to understand the process, the data the adjustments and then be able to make those business decisions rely on the data again to, as you said, go back in history and kind of quantify the improvement. So there's a lot of steps. I think, you know, that's, and and that's why it's important, I think, to have these conversations because it's not an easy problem to solve. I think we're as an industry moving in the right direction, but there's a lot of moving components in that chain that needs to be correct for us to have that said, like feedback loop. And I'm, I'm very, I guess, positive and optimistic about people like that entering our field. And again, like using their algorithms to solve these challenges. That's very interesting. Now, Vlad, if I may, I think Graham made a really good point. I think Graham made a lot of really good points, but I think Graham made one really good point that is worth kind of doubling down on. He mentioned that basically that a line or a system needs to be stable before anything else can, can happen. And I feel like that's a very good point, right? So no technology, none of the modern enterprise architecture or machine learning that can tell the difference between a Charleston and a whatever TikTok dance you're doing is going to be successful if it doesn't learn on a, on a stable line. And so when I say a stable line, I mean something that runs uh, about as well as, as you would hope that it could run, you know? So if we're talking about OEE, a metric that we could debate whether we love or hate, you know, 
maybe the OEE is running 75 or 80 or 85%. And we're like, this is good. You know, this is good. This is stable. We don't have a lot of micro disruptions. Generally speaking, this line is running well. You can then go and kind of build upon that. If you have a line that no one knows how to run and it starts and stops 75 times in an hour and your best, you know, your best OEE percentage is 20% one hour during one week. And you guys are like, oh, the, the shift did so well that those are two completely separate, you know, issues. So on the, the second one, you need to find stability. You need to bring those uh, process whispers, as I think Jeff is calling them. You need to bring those guys in to fix your process so that you can train a model on the process and then leverage the, the rest of the, the, the modern enterprise architecture. So I think that that's a very good point. Uh, when I see people looking for kind of a silver bullet, uh, generally in much of the last few years, it's been artificial intelligence. They think artificial intelligence is going to come solve the problems of we can't run our line. Artificial intelligence isn't going to solve we can't run our line. It's going to help you get that last, you know, 5%. Um, so I think one, I think that that's a really good point. And, and I think kind of to the, the question that you asked in the beginning as to, is this going to, is the additional data with the contextualization going to mean that we can have, that we need more process experts or fewer process experts? I, I think Jeff and Graham are, are both right. I think in the short term, we're going to need more process experts to help contextualize everything that we're doing. But I think the goal of this has to be long-term. We don't have the guy who's been on the line for 45 years there working every day because at some point in the not too distant future, that guy's going to go retire. I know a lot of those guys who have retired in the last couple of years and many facilities who are significantly worse for the wear. So I think it's very much you have to put in the work now in the short term to be able to leverage the knowledge that you help train and, and build for the next generation. I think, Dave, I want to add to that. I want to make a distinction between um, uh, use, using, the, using a, a, a line that is running well and applying some kind of machine learning and analytics on that in a feedback loop to tweak some set points and, and try and improve that line. That's great, right? versus the process engineer who's going to come in and is going to look at that line and say, no, hang on. Actually, if we put a VSD over here, we're going to start saving 10% energy on this line. The AI is not going to tell you that based on the way that you've trained it on the data to improve that line. So there is a fundamental distinction that we must remember um, and, and for that reason, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of, of process engineers. They're always going to be uh, helping us improve and change the process to, 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 to make incremental and step changes. Absolutely. I think, I think machine learning and AI is going to allow us to optimize the equipment that we currently have mm -hmm. and make that run perfectly. Absolutely. I, I would I agree hope that, that makes sense. I, I would agree with that. Uh, it kind of brings me to, to a slight tangent. It's normally Vlad who takes us on tangents, so it's only appropriate that it's, uh, it's myself that takes us on a tangent today, Graham. Uh, to, to your energy point, 
Do you find lots of facilities monitoring energy and saying, hey, where can I go save 5% or 10% or 20% energy costs? I, I guess I'll kind of throw it out there. I generally don't see many facilities do, but the places that I've seen do it, especially ones with large pumps, for example, I see them save right. millions of dollars a day or millions of dollars yeah. a year. So, so, so what are you seeing? And do you think that that is something that we're going to see more of into the future? Yeah, I do think we're going to see it more in the future and, and maybe a little bit of a, a backstory. Um, when we built Flow for the first time, it was built to monitor and uh, try and optimize energy usage mm -hmm. and water usage. Now, for the, for the audience that don't know, we started Flow in South Africa and uh, we serve the African continent. Now, electricity is in huge demand. Uh, and I think I mentioned to you last week, uh, we are sitting right now, we're sitting here with what we call load shedding. And that means that the utility shuts down parts of the country on a cyclic basis, today I had five hours during my working day where I didn't have power. So you can just imagine the demand for power in industry. So it is fundamental. We pretty much every single system that we, every, every customer we talk to, certainly in the African continent, um, they are looking to save energy and to save water. Um, when we started off in the US, we were quite surprised that that wasn't a focus. And it's certainly starting to change. We're definitely seeing more customers wanting to focus on saving energy and water. That's always been the lowest of hanging fruit on the historian sales side is if you run into a, a plant that's not monitoring peak energy cost, right? Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, what, uh, let's just say $20,000, $30,000 for a, a, a decent historical solution. And all of a sudden now they can easily diagnose what it costs them to start up a piece of equipment at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, where what, a, what, what can a variable frequency drive do to reduce that peak usage of that energy. Oh, oh my goodness. ROI is, uh, is a 45 day ROI from the cost of our, uh, of our software implementation. So I, we would always, our ears would perk if they said, Oh yeah, we're thinking about starting to monitor the utilities a little bit. That's a, a home run every time. So if we can add to that conversation, I've seen some very large companies switch towards those initiatives and have a pretty good handle on, energy usage and not just, you know, a facility would be across plants, um, I would say like globally, uh, but also on their individual production lines. And I would add, it's not only in the effort. So I guess obviously the most, I guess, first answer is to reduce the energy usage of a specific line, maybe, or, um, you know, a process, but also to better their, I would say, runtime. And what I mean by that is that Unlike, you know, Graham's maybe power situation, it would be that they would have, let's say, power blimps from the utility company and a shutdown or let's say like three blimps in a month would be enough to destroy a number of motors. 
right? So through monitoring the energy usage of a specific line, they could actually have the solution when they would smartly shut down a specific line through like a bank of capacitors to prevent the blimp from damaging equipment or just stopping very abruptly. So there, there's other like use cases that I've seen with energy monitoring in place that allow them to save money. Yeah. Any, any type of a process where the restart of that process takes not minutes, but yes. hours, right? Like thinking of uh, some of the, some of the furnaces that we've run into where if some, if they go down for any reason, it is a, a rolled steel plants. Oh my goodness. The, you know, if the, if that line gets disturbed, um, yeah. So parts failure shut down that might have major production cost, um, are always easy, low hanging fruit. Should we, Dave, should we shift back to this enterprise architecture in this box with the question mark? And so we're going to do that as soon as we thank some people. So Vlad is going to play a sound and then, then we're going to thank some people. Well, we're actually going to thank you guys. There you go, Dave. Perfect. Uh, so as I mentioned, we want to both thank and maybe slightly embarrass uh, Graham and Jeff, uh, Canary and Flo, for sponsoring, uh, for sponsoring this theme. Are you serious about maximizing the value of your process data? Canary will help you historize every sensor and time series data point within your enterprise at a fair price and incredible performance. Lossless data compression, modern trending tools, and an unlimited tag model make Canary the data historian that never cuts corners. But historizing your data only solves part of the problem. For super-powered analytics, you need Flow. Flow Software is the analytics hub for data scientists and decision makers. With Flow, you can unify real-time historical and transactional data with little to no code. Finally, a single source for all your enterprise-level data queries, perfect for data scientists and IT teams that support them. Uh, again, thank you to Graham and Jeff, uh, Flow and Canary, for sponsoring this theme. And we wanna go shift back to kind of this box, right? So um, we, had a, we had a couple of pieces that, uh, that we left hanging out there. And one of them was basically, Graham, you know, you, you have built Flow because you, you found a bunch of needs, right? And th there was a big gap in the market and you kind of have built this box that, that solves the problem. Uh, so do we want to talk about what, what you've decided to kind of go with the name of the box and maybe a little bit more about what that looks like? Sure. Yeah. So, so what Dave is referring to is that for, for many years, we didn't quite know where flow fitted into the stack. You know, there's this traditional automation stack and we didn't quite know where it fits. Is it, is it in the SCADA level because it's doing some kind of, data acquisition, um, is it at the MES level, but it's not quite because it's not really doing execution. Um, so we've, we've, we've tried many different names for the box that Flow fits in over the years. Um, manufacturing information system, uh, information platform. Hey, manufacturing information system was a huge miss, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> um, but I think Dave, we've actually kind of settled on a on a on a decent name. One that what one that really does describe 
what flow is and what it does. It's not a name. It's not a box in the, on, in the traditional stack. We are, we are calling it the analytics hub. And I think what makes it a little bit more special is that it can be distributed as well. So it can be the distributed analytics hub. And when we talk about distributing the analytics hub, we're talking about being able to deploy parts of it to the edge and the kind of calculation services and that kind of stuff you can deploy on-premise or in the cloud. Uh, you can distribute it across multiple machines, multiple servers. So you can do a, you can do an ex, a, a really large system, again, talking to scalability, by distributing your load across multiple servers. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what we're going to settle on, the analytics hub. I love that. Um, I, I've said it before. I don't know how many times I've said it live on the show. I, I love that. I feel like it's the first time that Vlad has heard the phrase analytics hub with, with context. Vlad, what, what are your thoughts on analytics hub, the, the need for an analytics hub? I've known you've done some, uh, some not insignificant research going down similar paths earlier in the year. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I was actually reviewing the description that you have on uh, on the website, and I, I've gone through it before. I know that we've looked at uh, Flow Software as a solution in the past. I think it's um, I think it's definitely a very interesting approach, and I and I've seen I, I guess like I've seen this way of approaching data flow in the past. I think that there's certainly a lot of, as we, again, like as we discussed, I, I keep bringing this up, but there's a lot of, I think, challenges with getting the data right to the analytics hub. And I think that's going to be a major, like, challenge still to be solved. And I know that Jeff, again, with Canary, hopefully um, there's a lot of the data presented to Flow makes I would say like better sense than what I've seen in many manufacturing solutions. So I'm, I, I guess like my perspective, Dave, to be uh, completely transparent, I think there's a need for something like this. I've seen a lot of challenges with many of my customers getting the data to a yeah. state where analytics can be performed. And I think that there's going to be more and more opportunities for a solution like Flow to be able to, again, make sense of the data that's coming in and then again, I'm really curious maybe to hear from Graham what kind of a interface is then available to see this data or what kind of, you know, you've mentioned some APIs that I'm assuming are available for when an OE is calculated or again, I'm assuming you can do a lot of metrics and calculations. How is the user able to see that information then um, about their business, about their facility and otherwise through flow or from the, the analytics hub? Yeah, so I think it's less, it, it's less about the visualization from within the analytics hub, but I'll, but I'll talk to it in a second. It's more about preparing and managing the data and transforming it into something that is usable. Uh, it's trusted and it is easily accessible. And that access might be through, for example, a single API point, endpoint, um, that you can then use that information in any visualization tool. 
or any machine learning tool or back to your SCADA system if you wanted to. So that for me is more important than the built-in visualization. But coming back to that, it is an important component to have some built-in visualization because often that visualization is going to be used when you are commissioning a system. You just need a quick way to see the data, uh, to see what your calculations results are producing. Um, you also, um, if, you, if, you, if you don't have a standard business intelligence tool like Power BI, although most companies do, certainly Microsoft houses will have that, you do want something out the box from your analytics hub that allows you to present dashboards and charting and, and whatever tables, even just simple tables of information at your meetings. You potentially should be driving your meetings based on these KPIs. Because if you're not discussing KPIs in your meetings, what are you discussing? What are you making decisions on? So you should actually be building out your charts and your, your tables, your dashboards, according to your meeting structure so that you can walk through them and you can make decisions. You can add commentary into the, to the analytics hub that then adds context. We were talking about this earlier, that tribal knowledge to answer the why. If it happened last month, Put a comment in there. Explain why it happened once you know the answer so that tomorrow the new guy can go and have a, have a look and see, oh, that's how you fixed it. He doesn't need the tribal knowledge. It's built into the system now. Um, well, on messaging, Graham, is that part of messaging? Is that part of taking the business processes, the teams, the Slack channels and connecting them to the analytics hub so that we can, as a group, have a conversation uh, and keep that archived. That, and that is that is another level, Jeff. So so absolutely. So what what I was describing is uh, each each data point within the analytics hub can have a running commentary on it, and and that's the tribal knowledge that kind of gets captured against that data point. But to to your point, yes. We also want to be able to trigger based on a time period, based on an event happening, based on a limit being exceeded, the, the compilation of a message and then distributing that message to a number of people through any number of mechanisms. That might be Microsoft Teams, it might be Slack, it might be email, it may even be an SMS. So that, that is another level of being able to get information out, just like the API is a way of getting information out to other systems. Um, the analytics hub should have some kind of a messaging system as well that you can trigger messages out to people so that they can get information when they need it and it can get to the right people. And the beauty of using those systems like Microsoft Teams, for example, is that within that channel that those people get that message, they can actually respond within that channel. They can contribute information about whatever problem was experienced. Again, bringing that people context, that people knowledge back into the system. 
I, I was tying it in too with the visualization, meaning if you have a basic dashboarding capability, can, then you also have a basic visualization that can be coming into the messaging service along with the conversation, right? So, hey, this has happened. Here's your snapshot visually of what, what this looks like. Uh, yep, along, exactly. So maybe, maybe it's based on a limit to being exceeded. Maybe right. you haven't achieved right. target for the, for the hour or, or for the shift. Trigger the message. Take a PDF of a, a dashboard in a, in a headless way in the background. Attach the PDF to the message and send it off. So now it's, it's actually captured in your SharePoint against the message, and it's there forever. Hmm. The, the other benefit, I think, of having that visualization component is a way, a UI for manual form entry. That without that visualization component, manual form entry becomes a problem for, a, for an analytics hub. Your thoughts? Absolutely. So, so manual entry is an incredibly important and easily overlooked feature of an analytics hub. If you if you starting off building out a, a custom analytics hub, let's let's a custom reporting system. Right. Um, often you will not cater for manual entry. And there are so many examples of where manual entry is required. Um, with that, you also want to be able to correct data that is captured and calculated automatically. Because sometimes you're going to have a mag flow that's out for, for calibration and you're going to get rubbish coming into your historian and you're going to automatically collect rubbish for that period. So you want to be able to, there are two, two ways to handle that. Either you have manual entry capability to correct that data point with a best guess um, or some extrapolation that you do manually. Obviously, you want full audit trail with that. You want to know who's changed it and you don't want to, over, you don't want to override the last data points. You want to add to the last data point so that you never lose the history of a specific data point. You can always go back and see what it was in case the guy or girl capturing the, the extrapolated value has got it wrong. You can always revert. Um, the, other, the other area where manual entry is so important is the classification of, of data um, or categorization of data. And I, and I always use the example of downtime. If your analytics hub has captured a downtime event for, let's use the filler example again, um, but we don't have any mechanism to automatically capture a reason code. Maybe the filler um, OEM never coded in some kind of a state or a reason code into the PLC. But we want that information. So where are we going to get it? We can only actually get it from an operator. So we provide them a manual entry form that when that event is created automatically, it pops up on the screen with a drop-down box or, or buttons or whatever the case is, and they can go and say, oh, it, was, it was an upstream um, starvation because of the labeler or whatever. Um, that's a very times. common problem. If, if, I can, if I can jump into that, Graham, that's a very common problem that I've seen across production floors. And it could be not just that they didn't have that option. It could be that 
you know, a machine is getting jammed or whatever, and somebody just hits a stop button repeatedly to clear said jam, but then you have to go back and code it as a jam, right? Because they stopped it, so to speak, prematurely, or because maybe there is no sensor to detect that specific jam. So they just, you see a lot of stop push button pressed events uh, for your entire shift. And so obviously that becomes a lot more valuable than having the information of, I don't know, this was a jam or this was a, a pulley failure, a belt that tore off, you know, and if you can code that into your system, that becomes very, very important. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the analytics hub needs to have that manual entry. Um, and and t normally they would go hand in hand with the visualization because often you can, you can even build a dashboard that contains visualization components and manual entry components on the same dashboard, hmm. for example. So you, while you're entering the data, your dashboard's updating. Um, so, so they go hand in hand and typically they would be, they would be served in a browser. For example. Let me ask you, let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, I guess how difficult or what is the process of, I want to say like setting up these triggers or maybe transforming this data, as you've mentioned, what does that process look like? Is that something that, you know, flow does it for you? Is that something that a process engineer or a plant can set up? Like what's the division the there, I guess, and what's maybe the, the learning curve um, to get it done yourself, so to speak, as the end user. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so there's the the process is is sometimes quite iterative. So often, I'm I'm going to make a distinction between an analytics hub and an analytics tool. So, for example, uh, let's use Excel as your analytics tool. So you're going to be working. In, in Excel, you're going to be calculating a couple of things based on, on data. Maybe you've pulled from, from your historian and you've, you've pulled from your, your MES database, for example, and you build out a, a calculation. And, and that's great. You've, you've got it in your Excel spreadsheet and that sits on your laptop. Um, but now you want to take that piece of analytics that you've developed and you want to build it into an analytics hub. Why? Because you want to operationalize it. You want to make it automated so that it's going to produce that same calculation every hour or every shift or every day until the end of time. It's just going to keep on doing that piece of work for you automatically. It's going to automatically pull the data from the historian. It's going to automatically pull the piece of data from the MES. It's going to do the calculation and any downstream calculations, and it's going to produce that for you. So that's the operational operationalization of your analytics. From your analytics tool, you've now put it into your analytics hub. Now, to answer your question, Vlad, yes, we have to make that as easy as possible for a process engineer to build out because we can't always rely, we, we can't be scalable if we're going to rely on the systems engineers. So we want to make it as user-friendly from a configuration environment. We want to make it drag and drop, drop down boxes, being able to drill into the underlying historian data source, pick a tag, drag it across, 
You know, all of these, these um, ease of use uh, UI philosophies need to be there to make it as easy as possible for uh, and, and make our process engineers and even our managers self-sufficient. I, I second that from the historian perspective as well. Like if, if deploying a historian at site requires specialized skill or talent, you've already lost. Like it's, it's, it's gotta be super simple. Do it in, do it in an afternoon with no previous experience or knowledge other than some basic computer, you know, some basic, uh, some basic computer skills. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to get a gauge, I guess, of, uh, where our industry's headed, because again, I think there's a lot of, uh, complicated systems that I'm really hoping that we simplify as we move forward. And I think there's a need for, again, ways to understand data that are, I guess that don't require full engineering teams to deploy, right? Like, I guess like that's what I would say, but uh, ultimately there's enough challenges in that chain of events that needs to occur. So I'm all for simplifying those tools. That's why I I wanted to uh, to bring that up. Well, and even would, I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. Okay, I was going to say I feel like on that note, uh, Jeff and Graham made the mistake of defining uh, the goal of enterprise architecture, modern enterprise architecture, a couple of months ago on a call, and they didn't realize that I just copiously take notes of everything. And I, hmm. I feel like th- this is a really good kind of point uh, definition that that very much goes into the the goal of we can't have you know, very specified, you know, engineering teams to deploy all of these, right? So uh, the goal of enterprise architecture or modern enterprise architecture is to build a scalable framework independent of its sources that combines and transforms data streams into a structured and normalized central repository for analysis by people and systems. Say that again. But yeah. do it slower. I, I've forgotten that we defined that. <laughs> yeah. See, see, this is why someone has to take notes. On well done. Yeah. No. So uh, the goal of modern enterprise architecture is to build a scalable framework independent of its sources that combines and transforms data streams into a structured and normalized central repository for analysis by people and systems. That, and- is, that is what Graham has tattooed on his lower back. I don't know if you knew that. Small text or big text, it's, Graham? Well, it's the um, it's. Oh, yeah, we're not going to ask him yeah. to show it, but we, we no, trust no. that it's there. No, that will be manufacturing hub after dark, where where Jeff does his TikTok dance, yeah. TikTok dance, and, and Graham shows off his uh, his enterprise architecture tattoos. Um, but but no, so I, I feel like that that's very important, right? So we spent a lot of part one. Uh, We kind of delved into the historian and Jeff, you guys talked about what you did with Canarius, especially uh, towards the end. And Graham, we talked a lot about flow and we talked about how they work together. And at the beginning of that, we talked about the importance of having these tools and it not being it. It's more important to have the tools and have the systems and processes in place as opposed to what the name of the tools and systems and processes uh, specifically look like, because the. At a site level, you know, you could, as we described at the very beginning of last episode, you could have, you know, Canary and you could run it to flow and you could build everything off of ignition. And like you could have the most perfect architecture 
but then assuming you do well as a business, uh, as Graham asked me what, what happened, or I'm sorry, I think it was Jeff. Jeff asked me what happens. And I'm like, well, you're probably making a lot of money. So you're going to go buy another facility. And, and what happens when you go in that other facility? Well, odds are that absolutely none of those tools overlap. Right. And so at some point you've bought 10 facilities with 20 different iterations of five different types of software and hardware. And it all has to go get sucked up into something. And so the, the goal of a modern enterprise architecture is it becomes more important to have the correct tools and the correct processes and very much the correct people in place so that you can be successful as to worry about the, the very particular names of the brands. Um, yes. And so I, I feel like that was that was very important. Um, and I do have a couple of, a couple of questions and then I'll give everyone, including Vlad, kind of the, the opportunity to, uh, to, to, you know, final thoughts after part one and part two of this. Um, but I, I actually want to ask everyone, uh, the question that I asked at the, at the end of last episode is, is what do you think the future is going to become? I think we were all exceptionally positive, um, other than Vlad, who wasn't with us, uh, Vlad was slightly less positive around this time a week ago, but I, I think we were all generally very positive as to what the future w is going to become. And I feel like we, we spent much of the last hour talking about what we think the future is going to look like. So, so Jeff, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of take another bite at the apple. You know, what do you think the, the future is going to look like with modern enterprise architecture, with manufacturing, a, a little bit of everything? Yeah. Thanks for making me go first. You're welcome. Um, so I think that the <laughs> three or four years ago, the ITOT convergence topic started coming up, at least prevalently in the conference talk, right? Um, and of course, it's been replaced with sustainability and digital, not even digital, what's the digital transformation is the, is the current, but you know, I think we kind of brushed past ITOT convergence a little too fast. Um, when it first came up, in my mind, it was this, this physical battle between operations team members and IT team members over who owns what. And, well, no, 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 you're not shutting this process down to do a server upgrade, or I don't care how many widgets you make. I don't want this door open to the outside world, right? Yep. Um, well, I think... Realistically, yeah, I and anybody else that was thinking that way were dead wrong from what the what it originated as. What it really, I think, and is still very much the hot issue, is how do OT systems and IT systems converge? And it's around that data exchange. And what what has been coined here today as the analytics hub to me, is the convergence point of OT and IT systems. And I think we are going to find that all of the technology that has been advancing extremely quickly in the last two or three years, uh, some call it the last mile technology, um, or these, these really just awesome systems, these new solutions, they all still have a fundamental problem. They are all relying on someone to answer how we systematically and near effortlessly at scale combine OT and IT systems. And I, I personally believe with all of my heart that the answer to that is this newly named analytics hub. Um, this directory of underlying operational and IT databases that 
we can query without having to understand anything about the underlying databases, right? So if I can query the analytics hub and get the data that I need without having to know how the historian and how the SCADA system and how the real-time data source, uh, without even having to know that they really exist or what product they are, I just get that data. That is what is going to empower ITOT convergence. And I think that's the big future that we're looking at. And more and more organizations are starting to understand that is the piece that is really missing from them. Um, they've been sold these IT solutions from these really large, really large companies, and they're not working. They've been promised the data lake will solve their problems, and it hasn't. They've tried to make the historian the OTID convergence point. We talked last week why I don't personally believe it. it's the right fit. Um, that's my answer for you. Okay. No, I, I think that that is, that, that is interesting. Uh, empowering the correct people, the, the super users, if you will, is exceptionally powerful for any organization and any way that we can remove the, the, the speed bumps to, to doing that yeah. will absolutely, uh, will absolutely be important. Uh, Graham, you're, you're on the hot seat. What do you, uh, what do you think the future looks like? Yeah, I, I just want to quickly add to, to what Jeff has said. Um, you know, there, there are so many systems that we make use of um, in, our, in our facilities, our MESs, our LIMS, our wave bridges, our power metering systems. There are just probably 20 different types, maybe more types of systems that we, that we need to be running at our facilities. And often each of these systems either has, has its own portal for reporting or it's pumping the data up into its own cloud system, which you have to access um, through some kind of a portal. So for anybody who's doing any form of analytics and trying to make decisions, they are spending a lot of time going to each of these separate systems and trying to gather the information that they're looking for. And so this is really where this whole concept of analytics hub is so important, that it, it is purpose-built to plug into each of those data sources and to consolidate that data, to create an abstracted model, um, a, a, a meta-model, meta-layer on top of all of those data sources. Um, and, and to Jeff's point around the fact that when you query the analytics hub, you're not only able to query the calculated and transformed data that sits inside the hub, you can actually pass through yeah. to the underlying data sources. So one endpoint gives you access to all of your data sources. And honestly, you don't need to know, you don't need to care about where the, that data is coming from. So you might be pulling a, we, we call, let's just call it a KPI. You might be asking for data from a KPI. The name has been abstracted. We're calling it filler output, filler one output. Mm -hmm. The end user of that doesn't care that it's coming from the historian. They don't care that it's come from the canary historian or some other historian. Um, and, and that's 
that's what I'm excited about in terms of being able to consolidate all of this in an abstracted model, in one, one Uber namespace, yep. which, which is the analytics hub. Um, in terms of, of, of where I see things going in the future, I, I agree with Jeff that this analytics hub concept is the bridge. It is the bridge between our, our control systems, our OT systems, and our IT systems. And I, I'm definitely seeing more customers having gone through the pain of let's just put it all in the cloud in our data lake and then we'll figure out what to do with it. They are actually coming back down to earth and saying, actually, we need something like this analytics hub concept to pre-contextualize, pre-aggregate, pre-calculate our data, transform it, and then we can put it into our, our data lake. And then we can use tools, visualization tools on that data. It will just work so much better, so much easier at scale and much faster time to value. Um, and then the last thing that, and I mentioned this last week, I am very excited, even, even though I place so much importance on the process engineer mm -hmm. uh, being able to help us with step changes in our processes, in our process optimization. I'm very excited about being able to take the, the information, the transformed information from an analytics hub and hand that off to the machine learning and AI folk. And I think they are going to do absolutely incredible things with it. And the beauty of using the analytics hub for it, because it's an automated pipeline of transformation, you can, you can then extend the automation of your training algorithm, your training process. So you train continuously and then you put it in production continuously. And the idea is then you read back the results from those, those models, those machine learning and AI models, back into your analytics hub, which then makes it available back to your other systems and your people. Um, and, that, and that's really what I'm looking forward to seeing going forward. And of course, what that requires is open architectures. We need systems that are being built today to be built with open and common architect, common protocols. MQTT is a great example of that. It's a great uh, unif unifier that if we all start adopting technologies like that, we can all talk to each other and we can add more value to our customers for less. I love that, Graham. I, and, and I hope that we get to that point. Um, uh, th th that is the future. Vlad, I'm sure you've got lots of thoughts on what Graham said, but I also want to get your thoughts on, on what you think the uh, the future is going to look like. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, based on those perspectives and I think the discussion that we had a little bit earlier, I'm looking forward to shortening the learning curve of a process. And what I mean by that is, you know, a new engine, it could be a new grad or it could be someone who's just been assigned to a different process, different plant. Uh, I think right now doesn't have enough data, but also enough, I would say, contextualized and I would say 
highly accurate data to be able to make sense of that process. And I think by making, by making that available, you're able to bring in, again, employees, engineers, CI managers, it could be different individuals in different roles, but bring them up to speed on a process much quicker, which means that ultimately you're able to realize ROI on, um, on, on them and on, on their work a lot quicker, right? So having an understanding of a process is ultimately heavily reliant on data. And again, I'll, I'll throw in some of my experience when you show up to a facility that has fairly little data. And again, it could be a uh, either like an Excel spreadsheet or sometimes, you know, they record it and make it a little bit digital into like a manual entry platform. Sure, there's ways to understand the process. You walk the line with someone who's been there 30 years and they explain to you, well, you know, in this kettle would typically, um, you know, boil this type of a liquid for this long and then it transfers to this other kettle. But I think by having data that describes and paints a picture that is in real time, but also historical, allows someone to even not even need to go on the production floor and understand what's going on, right? And I think like SCADA systems have been somewhat successful at doing that, I think, but it's more like the visual aspect, but they're not been very successful at providing, I would say, like historical data in a, in a very, I would say, succinct manner. So I'm, I think that ultimately it's going to shorten that learning curve for all of us. No, no, perfect. I, I think all of that, uh, all of that is great. Uh, kind of last question, uh, last questions for Graham and Jeff, uh, I guess first is, do you have any last thoughts on modern enterprise architecture after chatting with us for two and a half or, or three hours at this point? Um, if there's anything left to say, please go ahead and let us know what you, uh, let us know what you think. And then also want to give you guys the opportunity to, uh, to say who should reach out to you. Uh, Jeff, we're going to let you go first. And uh, it was, I don't know if you caught him last week, Vlad, but, but Jeff had the, the absolute best pitch for a sales guy of, of how and who should reach out to him. Um, and the, the channels that are both acceptable and unacceptable, but, but Jeff, uh, uh, any last thoughts on modern enterprise architecture? Yeah, um, we, we've got to do the basics right to get started. So You've got to get a historian. The historian is as live to, alive today and necessary today as it ever was 10 or 15 years ago. It's going to continue to be necessary and a crucial piece of your data infrastructure. Uh, you need to evaluate your historian based on what type of open protocols can it connect to? How affordable is it? Can I put it and actually grab all of the data instead of having to prioritize tag values or point values because I'm super limited based on my licensing. And is it lossless in its storage? No interpolation, no swing door algorithms. I want to keep and capture everything because it's going to be important in years to come during the machine learning process that I'm going to want to get into. Um, so that's just kind of my closing thoughts is we've talked about some really exciting things. We've talked about a lot of future uh, enablement and what you can do, but at the most basic level, you'd be amazed at the number of, of men and women that are still facing the idea of, hey, we don't really have a good process historian in our operation. So I'd say, let's start there. Uh, good segue on how to reach out to me. Um, uh, if you wanna learn more about what some of those fundamentals are, 
um, that you should be striving for. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. It's easiest probably to find me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, active on LinkedIn. I'm always watching my messenger. Just do me a favor. If you're a bot, if you're a bot, don't. <laughs> I've, I've never been approached by, by more Eastern European ladies uh, that I, I'm positive don't exist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, Jeff Nepper, you can see how my name's spelled. I'll be the canary guy smiling at you. Actually, <laughs> wearing this shirt. Hold on. Here's the. <laughs> That's basically my LinkedIn profile. If you look at it right now, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I'd love to reach out um, and message me and I'll get you my cell phone number. We can talk anytime. No, th- that's amazing. I, I appreciate Thanks, it, Dave. Jeff. Uh, <laughs> always the, the best who should, uh, who should reach out to you and how they should reach out to you. Uh, so far, I think that uh, you're leading the pack after episode, uh, after episode 69, maybe numbers one and, and two on uh, on that answer uh graham not uh, not to uh, not to be outdone by jeff do you have any last thoughts on modern enterprise architecture I, I think one thing i would appeal to people to to start looking at is absolutely if you don't have a historian mm-hmm. it's a it's an absolute must for 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 all of your sites but further to that i think you are missing an opportunity by not getting in a a descriptive and diagnostic analytics tool, uh, analytics hub in as early as possible. Because even if you're not going to be using it immediately for for the the really cool future stuff around machine learning and AI, you've got so much low hanging fruit um, that you can that you can benefit from by just getting that analytics hub in place on top of on top of your underlying data sources um, and potentially at an enterprise level to roll up uh, data as well. So I would definitely recommend people, people start thinking about that more seriously, start looking at options. Um, and, uh, and I guess that that leads to, to contacting us at Flow. Um, I, I guess I, I did mention it last week, we are expanding in the US I'm going to just say that again because we're looking at uh, hiring software engineers. Um, Our focus is very much on our product and supporting our customers as best as we can. And for that, we require software engineers. Um, Further to that, our our go-to-market model is through partners. So we are expanding our partner network in the U.S., uh, in North America, so please uh, reach out to us, and yep, you can get get hold of me on LinkedIn as well, um, or on our website. Absolutely, cool. thank you. Thank uh, you I Dave. will uh, I will make the comment to anyone listening, especially on podcast form. All of Jeff and Graham and Flo and Canary's uh, information should be in the uh, in the show notes below. And and I'd like to congratulate Graham on in a short six and a half days going from I'm not sure what we're going to name this box to not only naming it Analytics Hub, but I feel like we should have had an Analytics Hub counter um, at, at some point on this show because <laughs> I'm pretty sure we had it at least 50 times uh, combined. So I, I'd like to congratulate uh, Graham for that. And I'd like to thank everyone for uh, for sticking with us and, and hanging out. This has been 
a really awesome series of conversations. I hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it. If you are listening on podcast form, please do those things like rate us five stars on everywhere you can rate us. Hit the subscribe buttons. I don't know. Tell your family and friends or download us a hundred times. Any and all of those things help. Um, And until next week, uh, we will continue. We will be continuing to talk about modern enterprise architecture, getting a little bit more in um, into the weeds, talking about what that looks like. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing you guys then, but until next week, thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you everyone.